Welcome to Cultivating Conservation, a podcast navigating new ideas of what conservation means and how we really can promote change. My name's Megan, and for the past 10 years I've been working as a filmmaker, telling stories about the natural world, in particular stories about whales. And I found on so many occasions whilst discussing different issues that all these incredible people around me doing exceptional things were not comfortable calling themselves conservationists. I'm here to call you all out and to instigate informal chats with individuals from all backgrounds about what the term really means to them. Delving into what shaped their thoughts and how each navigate the ideas of true conservation in what can sometimes feel like a constantly changing and hopeless future. My hope is to nourish and grow conscious conversations to ultimately help save the planet. Incremental change leading to monumental change. And if listening to this inspires just one person to get involved in something they really care about, then I'll be happy. So, what does conservation mean to you? In this week's episode, I chatted with my dear friend, Rob Lott. I first met Rob when he made his yearly visit to Orcalab back in the summer of 2013. We immediately became firm friends and back in the UK found ourselves at many of the same events, protests and conventions. We also travelled together to the Azores, Scotland, Wales and basically anywhere that we could spot whales from. He spent the last two decades campaigning for the better protection of whales and dolphins across the globe, from anti-whaling campaigns to anti-captivity campaigns with WDC, Whale and Dolphin Conservation. He's a huge advocate for the great outdoors and citizen science. He's a hoot and a half to hang around with, and he never turns up empty-handed. My friend Rob. My name is Rob Lott, and I'm from Wales in the UK. But currently, I am halfway across the world in my spiritual home, my favourite spot on this planet. And I am sharing the camera platform at uh, CP, Craycroft Point, looking out early morning across... Johnston Strait and the fog has just started to lift and we just had an incredible swim by with the elusive so far this season northern resident orcas so yes very happy very happy boy this morning. Just a quick side note the A23s that we just witnessed swimming east past CP Rob and I on uh, this platform is um, a magical moment always to witness watching whales especially when rob is here but particularly this summer in the summer of 2023 we're currently on monday the 14th of august and uh, we have witnessed an absence of nearly six weeks of the northern resident orcas in this area which is strange and alarming and worrying and um I mean, I think me, along with everyone at Orca Labs, had some small existential crisis over the past six weeks as to what we're doing and why we're doing it. But this morning when we woke up at 7.30 and there were messages on the group chat that we had A5 calls on the hydrophone and within half an hour, just as we'd made our coffee, we were uh, filming and uh, photographing and um, collecting data on the return of the northern resident but I just want to insert here um, a little snippet because you can't see unfortunately um, the wonderful things that we saw but you can hear the wonderful things that we heard. The first question I have for you, Rob, is 
called Origin, and that is what what was the first memory you have of the ideas of conservation or uh, seeing something that you felt was going to lead you into wanting to protect and conserve something? Well, I'm not sure when I was a six-year-old little boy holidaying in West Wales um, if I understood the concept of conservation, but I clearly um, have a memory of standing on the harbour wall, the beautiful little um, fishing village called Newquay, and looking out, and there were reports of some dolphins in the bay, and I was staring way, way into the distance, and then about five, ten metres off the harbour wall, this beautiful bottlenose dolphin breached right in front of me. And I always thought the ocean was cold and maybe a little bleak, but I was just astounded by that. And fast forward 30-odd years later, little did I know that I would um, find myself back in this little village, uh, completing my dissertation on bottlenose dolphins of Cardigan Bay, um, looking at site fidelity, group associations, and group size, and that gave me an understanding of the conservation measures in place, the management management plans, um, but how they needed to be reinforced because the dolphins had to share an environment with us as well, and we were just trying to find ways how that relationship could be harmonised. And what about your what about your origins with this platform that we're sitting on here right now at CP? Um, this isn't your first rodeo, is it? Indeed, it's not my first rodeo. So back in long time ago, in the mists of time, nineteen ninety, I just graduated from university with a degree in zoology, and like many students, didn't really have an idea what I wanted to do as. Um, as a career, but I knew I wanted to be involved in conservation and the natural world. And I can remember my grandmother once telling me, try to make your hobby your job, and then it wouldn't feel like work at all. So I was, during the last year at university, I was um, invited to write uh, a paper on animal behaviour. And it was uh, an animal of our choice, and not surprisingly, I chose the orca. And I knew I wanted to take um, a gap year out after my studies. And I can remember sitting down, old school, writing, not emails, writing 50 or so letters to people all over the world asking if I could come and volunteer. And I only had two replies. One was from Dr. Michael Big, and the other letter was from Dr. Paul Spong at Orca Lab. Sadly, just before I left the UK, um, I had a note to say that um, Michael Big had, um, was seriously unwell so um, sadly that wasn't to happen and tragically he passed away uh, way before his time but I still came anyway and I made my way up island to Orca Lab and I just had quite a, a spiritual feeling really stepping off the boat onto the rocks on Hanson Island and I just found I think I found my tribe this was uh, like a spiritual home and I had the best summer of my life that first year. Um, like I said, initially I was going to stay for a few weeks and I think I ended up staying about two to three months. And I vividly remember, I kept extending, extending my um, return to the UK and I vividly remember a young Welsh woman arriving 
Um, this was a, a couple of days before I was due to depart. And she was talking to me about a new charity in the UK called Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. And I was very keen to find out more about that. And that started my journey into conservation. Um, not immediately when I returned home, but I started to volunteer and did everything I could to um, promote the work of Orca Lab, but also the conservation efforts around the UK. And then I had an opportunity a few years later to go back to university and I went to um, the University of North Wales. I was in um, a retail job at the time, I remember. Um, I was on my coffee break and I was reading the local newspaper and there was a, an ad there about a new course called um, a Master's in Marine Mammal Science. And I always thought if I want, I always wanted to do that, but I thought I'd have to go to California or Australia to do it. And then to find out that it was just up the road from where I was living <laughs> in North Wales, I thought this was a lightning bolt moment. Um, this was meant to be. So, um, so I left that job and I went back to study marine mammal science, um, which led me back to Newquay and the bottlenose dolphins. And then a couple of weeks um, graduating from the master's course, I was offered the job at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. And that's where I've been uh, nearly two decades later. So this uh, coming year, 2024, marks 20 years of service with WDC? 20 years, yes. And I've worked in a few different departments. I've um, worked um, with the science team, um, conducting field work on Rissos dolphins. Um, we were one of the founding partners of the annual Orca Watch Week in the north of Scotland, in the far north of Scotland, where we've noticed um, May-June time seems to be um, a really good time where we see orcas, not just the semi-resident orca pods around the northern isles of Orkney and Shetland, um, around, but also um, a major discovery was the fact that orcas from Iceland um, come down to Scotland um, in the spring and early summer months. Um, this was a, a revelation to us. We were checking the ID catalogues and we were making matches to a particular um, distinctive female called Musa. Um, so she's seen in Scotland um, April, May, June time, and then she's um, often spotted in Iceland a journey of about a thousand kilometers. And again, if you read the literature on orca society, if you're an orca, you either eat marine mammals or you eat fish and you don't switch between the two. But it's since been discovered that the Icelandic orcas, um, the majority of their time is spent in the fields of Iceland, um, feeding on herring, following the herring runs. But when they come down to Scotland, they are switching prey and they're actually um, hunting seals. Wow. So there are about, I think, a, a thousand or so individuals in the Icelandic catalogue. But so far, we've only identified about 35 um, that make this, um, this journey from Iceland to Scotland every spring. And we think that's a cultural tradition. Um, Musa, the matriarch that um, we mentioned, um, who was first spotted, I think, in the late 1990s. She probably came with her mother before, and now she's back with her family. Um, most years she's seen now. Wow. What do you think drives your passion within WDC? Where have you found your niche and where you find your skill set has really sort of helped WDC over the years? Well, for the last few years, my um, 
major work area has been around animal welfare and the issue of whales and dolphins held in captivity. Um, it's We've had some great successes, especially in the Western world. Um, there's important national legislation in place now. Uh, many countries have outlawed um, dolphin area. Um, I'm very happy with the fact that in the UK there's been no dolphin park for the last 30 years. And um, one of the key um, pieces of work that I'm currently working on is most people think the fact that we haven't had any um, dolphin area for 30 years be is because it was banned. But there's no ban in place in the UK. And what how this came about was um, way back in the late 80s, a report was commissioned um, to review dolphin area in the UK. And we had a 30-year history of um, commercial dolphin parks from the north of Scotland to the, the south coast of England. And reading about that, it was a real horror show. They had orcas, for example, at the end of um, Clacton Pier in basically nothing um, bigger than a, a swimming pool. And that was, Clacton Pier was actually only four or five miles away from where I grew up. As a child, I mean, I was born in 1988, but there's people that I've spoken to in the pub about, you know, swimming in those swimming pools yeah. with the dolphins and the orca. And I think at one point they had two or three orcas in that. I think that... four um, at one time, Yikes. and they were from Iceland. They didn't last very long. Um... I mean, that pool still exists now, but it now has bumper cars on it, like water bumper cars. Like that's how small the tank always has been and always was it's, it, it's still there today being used for kids to play around it's incredible to walk along the pier and to think that this once um you know held such from Iceland. highly sentient highly mobile powerful um social creatures as, as orca just for our entertainment so one of the pieces of work now is to try and we hope it'll be a relatively easy piece of work is to try to get a piece of legislation written into UK law that it is illegal um, for Dolphin Area ever to grace the shores of the UK again. So ultimately there's, uh, you know, um, a ban should be able to be passed quite quickly because there's no opposition, there's no um, industry voice um, wanting to preserve their livelihoods. So after 30 years we are confident, uh, we have a petition going at the moment which we hope to deliver to um, the government in the next few weeks. Um, tens of thousands of people um, have signed saying let's once and for all um, make sure that this is a permanent ban because at the moment anybody with deep enough pockets or um, the intent to open a dolphin show could do it in the UK today. Wow. And I'm very happy that you know I'm not aware of any conversations in the UK of people if they have a, a weekend free um, thinking wouldn't it be great if we had um, a dolphin show to take the kids that mentality just doesn't seem to exist in the UK anymore however um, something happens I think when people jump on a plane and they go on their summer holidays each year and you know there are still I think about 30 facilities in the European Union and further afield um, in the US um, like the SeaWorld parks where people are keen um, to visit and some recent research actually came out of the UK and parents were asked why if you come um, to SeaWorld today and the major reason that came through was they were just um, remembering the experience they had as kids and they just wanted to recreate that for their kids they didn't really think too much about um, the animal welfare issues or the suffering of the individuals in, t in the tanks there but 
Mm -hmm. You know, it's 2023 now and there's lots of um, hope. There's, like I said, there's many, many countries that have outlawed um, dolphin area. There's bans in place um, with the sunset close. So they, some parks, um, some countries still have um, these dolphin parks. But when the, this current generation of whales and dolphins um, pass, that will be the very last generation and there'll be no longer any new um, permits. So we are encouraging these parks to change their business model um, to get out of the um, the business of displaying um, such intelligent um, social species just for our entertainment. And just to rewind a little bit back to sort of the era when you and I first met, um, if we go back to 2012, which was when the release of uh, Blackfish came out, and it was also around the same time that Whale Fest was happening in the UK, and that's one of the things that I was hugely involved with back in the time and then became involved in the Free Morgan Foundation and can you talk a little bit about that kind of era and how exciting that was and how powerful that and sort of the energy of that movement at the time it just gives me chills just thinking about it and that's how we met was through all of all of, not just through Orca Lab but through getting involved in that kind of stuff. Absolutely and Blackfish was um, huge for our campaign um, we finally broke through to a mainstream audience and the way it was put together, it was such a powerful um, piece of film documentary making. And I can remember people, friends of mine who were aware of what I did for a living and they were coming up to me and just saying, I had no idea um, about the abuses, about the poor welfare conditions of these parks. And, you know, making a, a vow, a commitment, um, never to support them, never to buy a ticket for these parks. And then ultimately, um, the pressure on SeaWorld parks, for example, um, they had to really turn the mirror on themselves. And as a result of Blackfish, they completely overhauled how they displayed orcas. It had to be um, less of the circus-style tricks. Um, it had to be more um, an educational message. So I don't know what educational message um, they can pass to the audience if you just see an, um, an orca in a barren chlorinated tank. Um, but also, importantly, they stopped the breeding program as well. So that's going back to um, our campaign to make sure that the current generation is the very last um, all over the world. And that is ultimately our aim. The scale of captivity around the planet, we estimate that there are over three and a half thousand um, whales and dolphins in 350 facilities in nearly 60 countries around the world. So our work is not yet done. Uh, one in every three captive um, dolphins is held in China. So China is very much the new battleground for us. Um, up until recently, China was taking um, belugas and orcas from the far east of Russia. Um, that's currently um, a closed operation. Uh, hopefully that will be um, a permanent close and that will never be um, reopened again, but the Chinese parks are still taking um, dolphins from the um, barbaric um, Taiji hunts in Japan. The scale of the industry in China, I believe they have 84 marine parks there at the moment, and they have another 33 under construction. So it's 33. Huge. And also, the thing that worries me about China, and as well as Russia, where we know that there are um, dolphinariums popping up in Russia as well as a, a huge captive trade that seems to be emerging is that 
when you've got markets um, in, you know, the European Union and in um, the United States, being able to sort of pull the rug out slowly from underneath them, as you'd say, is one thing. But China and Russia are domestic markets. They're, these parks are geared towards Chinese and Russian people, and it's going to be a much harder task especially with the legislation that they have in place to protect like social medias and that kind of thing is it's going to be a much bigger battle out there I feel it is and at the moment um, international NGOs are not able to influence any policy decisions within China um, wow. so our tactic is to raise awareness um, everybody's heard of the great firewall of China so there's no Facebook there's no social media yeah exactly presence, but they do have their own domestic version of um, Facebook called Weibo and we have um, people working um, in country um, visiting these marine parks trying to expose some of the abuses and some of the atrocious welfare standards there and when they put that information out on their domestic um, social media channels it's phenomenal they get um, engagement from four or five million people. Wow. This is a country of wow. a billion people. So especially the younger generation, they they get it. They're starting to understand the message. And sometimes I think the Western world is partly responsible for what we see in China now because as the um, economy in China um, grew bigger. They were more affluent families. It became more middle class. And when they had some time for relaxation or recreation, they were looking to... Um, Europe or the United States were what do people do on weekends, on high days and holidays. And then they saw the SeaWorld parks and they thought, right, let's see if we can recreate these um, in China, but on a much bigger scale. And I understand that they actually um, recruited quite a few SeaWorld staff in the US Oof. to set up um, the operations in China. Oh, wow. That's far out. So China is the new battlefield for us, but it does... The younger generation there, and even some of the um, decisions that the authorities have made, does give me hope. And one of the biggest projects I've um, ever worked on, and probably WDC, Well and Dolphin Conservation, has ever worked on, is establishing the world's first whale sanctuary in Iceland in 2019. And the story goes back to a company called Merlin Entertainments. Um, you may not know the name, the parent um, name Merlin Entertainments, but uh, it's the second largest entertainment company in the world after Disney. And in the UK, they own um, Madame Tussauds Waxworks, and they own the Sea Life Centres, they own Alton Towers, they own the London Eye on the River Thames. And they, back in 2011, um, went on a shopping spree in Asia and they purchased 12 amusement parks and one of these parks was a place called Shangfeng Ocean World in Shanghai and it was the only park to have um, captive cetaceans. They had three beluga whales which were wild caught from the far east of Russia and Merlin Entertainments has a environmental policy um, never to display captive cetaceans. They just said they're too smart, they're too powerful too social and too mobile ever to be confined um, in a barren tank. So they got in touch with Whale and Dolphin Conservation and then asking if we would help develop a sanctuary, a retirement project 
where these belugas could have a brighter future. So we jumped at the chance and we needed um, a company like Merlin Entertainments because this sort of project is incredibly expensive and takes a long time and it was a world first. And there's an expression um, that goes, all the pioneers get the arrows. So we knew people were watching us. We compiled um, a host of um, world expertise in transportation, in veterinary care, um, in sanctuary design. And I was involved in the site selection. So before we decided on Iceland, um, I traveled to the northern Norway. We looked at sites in Scotland. We looked at, I went to Russia, to the White Sea. Um, we explored Alaska. These are beluga, so it's an Arctic or subarctic um, environment that we needed for this species. And then we decided on a little group of islands called the Westman Islands off the southern coast of Iceland and a place called Kletsvik Bay. And Kletsvik Bay was the bay where Keiko, the star of the Free Willy movies, um, where he was um, moved in 1998 and he had five years. He was an Icelandic captured orca um, way before his movie stardom and he had five years back in his home waters. So the site offered um, the perfect environment to redevelop that as a beluga sanctuary. Um, it was sheltered, it was protected from you know what can be some wild Icelandic winters um, out in the North Atlantic there. It was close to, importantly, it was close to um, a small town, so we had um, the local community um, buy into the project. They remembered the Keiko days and they um, embraced the Beluga project um, with the same enthusiasm. And also it was um, an opportunity for us to um, station the, the care team. Um, the Belugas would obviously need, because they'd had most of their adult lives in captivity, they would all obviously need a care team to look after them. So we developed this bay which was um, 32 times the size of the the tank that they left in Shanghai. Wow. And originally I mentioned they had three belugas but there was um, an elderly beluga called Junjun. Um, she had a few chronic um, health conditions and sadly she passed away um, before we had the opportunity to to take her to Iceland. But the other two Belugas, little white and little grey, they flew. We had a donated aircraft, which was phenomenal. It was a huge saving to the project. Um, a Luxembourg company called Cargo Lux um, donated one of the 747s to move two belugas halfway around the world from Shanghai to Reykjavik. Wow. And that is probably the proudest um, thing that I've been involved in with Whale and Dolphin Conservation and probably the proudest thing um, I've done in my professional career to date. The Beluga Whale Sanctuary in Iceland, like I say, is the world's first, but um, I'm very encouraged that there are a few other sanctuaries um, coming through at the moment. The next one to be established, which is established, is the Whale Sanctuary Project in Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada. Um, that's hoping to welcome its first um, cetaceans, I believe, in 2024 next year. The Baltimore Aquarium in the US, um, they displayed bottlenose dolphins and they made the decision a few years ago now that um, they've stopped performing um, in shows and they've been exploring sanctuary solutions for, um, I think they have seven bottlenose dolphins at uh, Baltimore Aquarium and they'll be looking to build a sanctuary 
site in Puerto Rico and there's one or two sanctuary sites in the Mediterranean in Europe being proposed as well. So the reality is, you know, sanctuary solutions aren't available to the three and a half thousand captive whales and dolphins on the planet today, but it's a start. And a big part of um, my job now is encouraging um, tour operators. Tour operators have, you know, made a lot of money from sending people to these marine parks over the years. Now we're talking to tour operators to not work with any facility that continues to um, perform dolphins for entertainment and we're asking them to stop the breeding program because going back to my take-home message let's make the last gen this the last generation of whales and dolphins ever to be held in captivity and an end to breeding is obviously key to that we want to stop all transfers between parks and obviously any wild captures coming into parks and uh, we want them to improve um, the welfare conditions they currently face because some of these individuals will have um, a wait before they are eligible for a sanctuary solution and also we want um, tour operators and these parks to invest in developing the sanctuary model as well so going back to iceland with little white and little gray at the moment we believe it's going to be a retirement project for them um, it would be irresponsible to think about releasing them into the north atlantic these mm. are pacific ocean and um, belugas um, if ever they were to be released, it would be back into the communities um, where they were taken in the far east of Russia. And Russia, as you can imagine, has got all sorts of um, legal and political hurdles for us to do that. And we want to make sure that there's a permanent ban in place from taking um, orcas and belugas from Russian waters again before we even attempt that. But a retirement project in this beautiful bay in um the Westman Islands off the south coast of Iceland, where the belugas can feel, you know, the rain on their backs. They can feel the ebb and flow of the tides and the currents. Um, they can explore the seafloor, and that I'm very happy to, you know, to be a part of that. And let's see what the future holds. Um, we believe other belugas will come into this sanctuary site, and hopefully one or two of those will be suitable candidates for a release back into the wild. But as baby steps, this project, you know, we've got these two individuals out of um, the tank in Shanghai and, and back into the North Atlantic Ocean. And work is now underway to identify other belugas in other marine parks um, to join them. And there's a whole host of reasons as to why these marine parks would be looking to to send um, their exhibits um, to to sanctuaries. Some of these parks want to get out of the business. They want to change their business model. This is what happened in Shanghai where the bluegers were kept. They wanted to um, change the business model and develop um, a theme park instead of captive um, cetaceans um, on display for the public's entertainment. Some people, some owners of these parks have realized that the public, the general public, are just shaking their head and thinking, we don't want to do this. You know, this isn't um, just for the sake of entertainment. Why should a, another sentient um, B&B incarcerated um, just for our, our pleasure? So I think they're starting to see um, that there's much less of a public appetite to visit these parks. And it's also very expensive um, to keep them. So obviously, if they're not getting any ticket sales, if they're not getting the footfall, 
um, then they're going to have to think about diversifying and changing their business model, which we will support them with as long as, you know, captive marine mammals no longer um, remain a part of their offering. But it is going to be a slow, slow process. It's going to be a marathon, not a sprint, just to address and identify the welfare needs of thousands and thousands of captive whales and dolphins that we have around the globe today. Just lastly, Rob, I just really want to you to share some of your stories of your adventures on the United Kingdom. It's such an incredible, I think a lot of people don't really understand how much marine life and, and beauty there is on the coast and how accessible it is for people on the coast. They don't need to fly to Tenerife and go to a marine park to see dolphins in a swimming pool. It's actually all on your front door. And so the last... Uh, the last section, you've actually answered all of the other questions without me prompting them at all, um, in succession, which is quite good. But the last um, thing on the list is hope, which I think you've hit really well um, in terms of talking about the future of, of captivity, not just the hurdles, but the, the really great stuff. But yeah, what's out there in the UK and what do you love doing throughout the year when you're not coming out to Canada? I feel very fortunate, actually, to live in the UK. And, you know, my love affair with the ocean started, like I said, um, all those years ago when I was uh, uh, just a, a young boy standing on the harbour wall. And this is a place that I return to time and time again. It's just a couple of hours drive from, you know, I live in a, a very busy city, but it's a couple of hours drive. And most days in the summer months, you don't need to go out on a boat. You can um, go for a walk up on the cliff path or stand on the harbour wall eating a bag of chips and um, you know there's a really good chance that you will get to see um, dolphins coming in very close to the harbour wall there. And then in recent years just to sort of capture the public's interest and spirit you're right people are blown away if they have an experience watching you know a wild whale off um, a headland around the UK they were just like I had no idea that this was possible. And what we've tried to do, um, working with um, another charity called the Sea Watch Foundation, and we've established um, an annual event on the very north coast of um, Scotland um, called Orca Watch. And when I first started going up there, we used to give a couple of talks in a community hall. And there was some interest. I think we had maybe 20, 30 people show up to the talk. And then over the course of the week um, when we were up at the lighthouse, a place called Duncansby Head, looking out um, into the Pentland Firth um, for orcas. Um, you know, we had a handful of people in the early years, but in recent years, just through social media, um, we get hundreds and hundreds all converge, not just um, on mainland Scotland. Now we've sort of spread out to the Orkney Islands and the Shetland Islands, and we even do watches over in the Outer Hebrides. And it's a phenomenal opportunity to get like-minded people together. It's generated a lot of media interest just to get the word out there that um, a similar philosophy to um, what we have here in Canada with Orca Lab, that people can enjoy these incredible majestic creatures um, without interfering with their, their daily lives. Just standing, like I say, on the cliff or um, on the harbour wall and you can, if you're lucky enough, you'll get orcas coming to within a few metres of the rocks below. What kind of advice do you have to anyone that's listening to this that um, wants to make an impact in conservation, someone that perhaps has had an experience that makes them want to get involved? But it's 
the idea of getting involved in true conservation seems to be increasingly harder. But I also find at the same time, if you really open your mind to what your skill set can lend to the ideas of conservation, the possibilities are actually endless and it's such a broad spectrum. So what kind of advice do you have to yeah. anyone that wants to get involved in anything to do with Shorewatch, WDC, sort of the anti-captivity movement or even... Shorewatch is a great example and anybody that's got um, easy access to the, the coast, especially in Scotland, but other um, charities in the UK run similar schemes as well. It's an opportunity for people to play a part in citizen science. Um, so you're given the training and if you can spare a certain amount of time every week just to go to your um, local beach or local headland, um, find a, a cliff top and just do a scan and report what you see. And that fills into, quickly um, builds um, a huge database. And then we feed that into um, regional and national um, legislation. So that will then inform and speak to conservation management plans. If we can document that you know, we have this army of citizen scientists and we can say that, okay, bottlenose dolphins have been seen of this particular um, area 70% um, of the time from the months May to October, then that could be considered critical habitat for this species and that will influence how legislation is um, implemented to, to better protect them. So that's one way to get involved and it's really exciting. It's a fantastic community of people, I'm sure, watch. Um, and they have not just, you know, when they stand in sometimes in the cold and the wet and the rain, looking out and see. And sometimes they don't see anything at all. But, you know, if you see um, a breaching dolphin, that more than makes up for it. Um, other things you can do is to get political. I mentioned earlier about the attempts to bring in a captivity ban in the UK. So write to your local MP, sign the petitions. Um, talk to your friends, talk to your family, get them involved. And it's all about um, education, enlightening people, because, you know, there was um, an assumption, as I said, that these things are something for the dim and dark distant past in the UK. But um, like I said, there's nothing stopping um, these facilities from rearing their ugly head again. So you can talk to, we have um, a volunteer um, speaker scheme where people we have a, a presentation about the work of WDC and it's not just our work on captivity it's our work on um, whaling um, sadly commercial whaling hopefully coming to an end in Iceland soon um, but it's currently um, going on in Iceland um, Norway you see the horrific um, grins in the Faroe Islands and also um, in Japan so we talk about those campaigns and how people can get involved we talk about, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dolphins that um, die need needlessly in um, as a result of bycatch. They get caught in fishing nets at sea. We talk about um, climate change and we talk about um, our green whale initiative, how um, whales and dolphins, how they are environmental engineers, really, how they um, contribute to the, you know, the um, food cycle of um, through their, their poop. Whale poop is a very important subject. How they can fertilise the oceans and that can boost um, the, the plankton numbers um, in the ocean. More than half of all the oxygen that we breathe on this planet comes from the ocean. So it's important to show that they have an important conservation um, message in, in the environment of um, the marine environment of the ocean as well. 
So they're the three things I'd suggest is probably to talk to your elected representatives about um, what are they doing for marine conservation. Um, get involved with the Citizen Science Project if that's um, available to you, if that's somewhere close and convenient. And also spread the word, talk to friends, family, see if you can do um, a schools visit, um, talk about the, the wider environmental threats facing Wales and Dolphins, not just around the coast of the UK, um, but also around the world. And, and adopt an orca. And adopt an orca. <laughs> yes, that's a fantastic way um, of generating income for all our projects. You know, we are um, still a relatively small but growing charity. Um, you have the opportunity to adopt an orca, um, one of the orcas that just swam by this morning. We saw him this Five, morning. A60, A60 in the fog. So that was a, yeah, a personal highlight for me this trip. But um, as well as the um, orca adoption program, we also have the opportunity for people to adopt um, a dolphin in the Moray Firth in Scotland. And also through our office in the USA, you can adopt a humpback whale as well. And you'll get regular monthly updates as to how um, your adopted orca or dolphin or humpback is doing. And you also get to see some fantastic footage um, <laughs> shot from this very platform. Um, so it's a great way to engage with the individual and through the process of appreciating how majestic these um, creatures are when you see them out in, um, in this timeless um, seascape um, just out front from me here now. But you'll appreciate how they are so worthy of protection, so worthy of conservation. And then you can follow um, the work of WDC and then that will empower you to help us to create this army of conservationists to make sure that um, this whole timeless landscape is project protected for generations to come. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. That was, I mean, it is a highlight of my year to have you come and visit the platform for Likewise. a night, and uh, especially um, today. But thank you so much for talking, and um, I hope everyone's enjoyed that as much as I have. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Megan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Got some thoughts and feelings? Let's keep this conversation going. Please do get in touch, rate, subscribe and comment to help other people find this podcast and let's keep cultivating conservation. Conservation.